Don't you just love the way that Travis like opens the book up right away? He's like, all right, some reading to do during the message. <laughs> hey, let's, uh, let's offer a prayer one more time. Uh, gracious God, thank you for making yourself known here again in the baptism that uh, we've got to experience together as a community. Again, Lord, we pray that as Libby grows up, she always knows herself as a part of your loving family. Uh, God, as we open up your word uh, again here this morning, we ask that you open up our hearts and minds to receive it. God, even if we've heard stories like this in the past, God, uh, by your Holy Spirit, the one who inspired the writing of those words and the hearing of them uh, again today, we ask, Lord, that you make yourself known through them. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, uh, just want to let you in on a little known fact. Uh, my wife, Kristen, and I have, uh, have started dating just now this summer, a little over 13 years ago, which I tell you, as a way to like keep saying it out loud to let the reality set in. But, uh, but also that uh, over the course of these past 13 years, we've had a chance to go to just, I guess you could say a lot of different restaurants, a lot of different dates, but especially for this morning, um, we've had a chance to see some changes happening in restaurants that we've eaten at uh, quite a few times. Uh, there's, there's one in particular, and I'm not going to tell you which one it is because you might still go there and still really like it, uh, and I don't want to ruin that for you. But uh, there's one that we started going to, this is, like I said, uh, over a decade ago, that uh, it, for whatever reason, it just clicked with us. Maybe you've had an experience along the same way where you, you walk into this place, even though it's uh, crowded, there's a sea of people everywhere, it, it's like for somehow they find a table like immediately and there's no wait. And even though, again, like they're so crowded, it's the service, they're attentive and they're helpful and it's just a positive experience through and through. Of course, the food is delicious, makes me want to go back. Uh, the experience is, is, it's not just that it's good food, it's that the whole experience, the environment of the place is so welcoming and so hospitable. It's almost like I can't not go back. The layout of the whole thing, open kitchen, fireplace, the experience really sells you on it. And so, in fact, we love this place so much that we would end up going there several times. Sometimes uh, it would go there like uh, every single month, sometimes even like twice a month if that was going to be the place. It was like for a while there, there wasn't really a restaurant that we went out to eat other than this one. It was just the go-to. We didn't even have to, have to like think about it. It just clicked. Now, this uh, went on for at least probably a couple of years or so, and then for whatever reason, it wasn't anything really um, in particular that happened that made us not want to go back, but, but for whatever reason, we just didn't go there for a while. Uh, a while being like eight or nine years, we just didn't go there. Until more or less recently, we decided to head out to try it again. And maybe it was like, let's do this fun trip down memory lane or, or, or something like that. But we go there. And I don't think I've ever had this experience of something being so the same as what I remember, but at the same time being so different. Hey, walking into the place, what was the same was that it's the same facade on the outside. It's the same parking. I mean, it's the same exact building. Only you go inside. And one thing that was different was that there were no people around anywhere. I think the, most of the meal, it was just like me and Kristen but despite being empty, it was like the service was slow and sluggish and people, you know, they just weren't as helpful as at least I remember them being. The food was just a little bit more bland. The, the decor of the place, instead of being like this experience that sold you on it, it just seemed dated and, and stuffy. 
And so like walking out of the place, there's two things that come to mind. Number one is, you know, it, it's going to be a long time before we ever go back there again. And the other one is, how does that happen? I mean, how does a place go from, at least in my book, like the top, the best, I mean, for the all things considered, you know, travel time, price, you know, everything. There's just, there wasn't any better to being like, I, I don't think I want to go back there anytime soon. Maybe it's a new management, turnover, ownership. My guess, though, is it happens slowly. My guess is that even if it was the same management through and through, that they had this sense, like, I don't think a lot has changed from day to day or week to week, but these small incremental changes compounded over almost a decade add up to be just this huge difference. But the reason why I say this is it's clear that happens in restaurants. Frankly, we're surprised that a restaurant like, sticks it out for 10, 15 years. But the same thing happens in people, doesn't it? Like someone is a certain way and you remember them in your mind as being uh, frozen the last time you saw them and they were smart and they were energetic and they were, what, what impressed you most is that they were so passionate about the things that they believed in and you can't wait to connect with them to see it again only when you, when you finally get together again. It's like, I don't think this person is the same person that I remember you to be. I mean, maybe you don't see what has changed along the way, but let me, I gotta just tell you, you are not the same person I was friends with 10 years ago. These changes add up to be this drastic, like, overhaul in restaurants, of course, in people, in ourselves. So I wanna do something different. I wanna, like, maybe not just look back, but look forward. And say, hey, in 10 years, in 20 years, when you look into the mirror, is it going to be the kind of person that you want to become? Like, what do we have to do? What kind of changes do we have to make so that in 10 or 20 years, we want to hang out with, we want to be with the person that we're going to see? Most important for us this morning is, is how do we guarantee, what do we have to do so that in 10 years, in 20 years, we're the kind of person that God wants us to be. Because I've got to tell you, not becoming that person, it's probably easier than you think it is. We're going to continue the series that we started out last week called The Big Picture, where we get to drop in at a few different books of the Bible from Genesis to uh, Revelation, books in this uh, grander story, and, and try to get a sense for what the bigger picture that God is painting is all about. Uh, More than that, we're trying to look in a few of these books of the Bible to see just how each book shares its own little slice of that bigger picture. Um, So that in its own way, in its own unique place, each book of the Bible tells, and here it is, the Jesus story to its own unique time and its own unique people in its own unique way, even if that's before Jesus was ever even born. So last week, remember the, or a couple of weeks ago, remember the wood carving over here? We said in Genesis, God is, is carving out a people, uh, carving out a people, not just uh, as an end unto itself, but carving out a people so that he can give the gospel, this Jesus story to them, and that those, that carving out will be able to reach out and grab all the scraps of everyone from the ends of the earth and, and gather them in to share the gospel with them. Uh, last week, we heard the Joshua story about this land that was always promised to them, and the people finally came into their land, and they settled in the land. And then there was like this ominous little ending where it says, yeah, but the people were like half obedient. They they followed the words, but at the same time, they like didn't follow it through and through. 
This week we pick up on that ominous ending. Or we say they settle in the land, you know, and they're there. And th- things are good. In fact, as uh, the book this morning that we're going to get to is First Kings, as First Kings starts off, it's as if, it isn't as if, it is as if the entire history of the people of God has never been better. The, the people have never been more prosperous. They've never been more secure. Their borders have never been as wide, as broad as they are when First Kings starts up. As the book First Kings starts, King David is now old and he's leaving the throne to the capable hands of his son Solomon. And for, for every reason, objectively looking at this, we believe that, that this is going to be just a tremendous story. I mean, things have never been better under David and now the capable hands of Solomon. I just, I want to start us off this morning just to, to show us, like Solomon is on, is on top of this mountain and, he, and, he's, and he's looking down over this huge kingdom and how sure-footed he is, that, that, that this is the place that God wants him to be. And that, and that he's leading just as, as God wants him to lead. So we're going to start off and, and see this like sure-footedness of Solomon leading as, as God's leader. And then we're going to see him start to slip a little bit on that hill. And by the end of First Kings, by the end of the king story, we're going to see not only Solomon but the entire nation is in like this, this free fall. And we're going to answer that question. How, how does that happen how do those small incremental changes add up to be so much? And more than that, I hope, we'll come to some conclusions as to what we can do, as to what God is doing in our lives to stop it and hopefully partner with him. So to start us off by this sure-footed Solomon looking out across the kingdom, leading as God's leader, there's a, a time when God came to him, and he's a, he's a young leader now. His dad has just passed away. It's falling on him now, and, and things are at a place that are just so good, and that means that it's like shoes that are so difficult to fill, and Solomon knows that he needs some help. It's this posture of humility that we just, we love about the story and the people loved about him. God comes to Solomon. I think this one sort of says it all and says, Solomon, I want to help you. And there's this vision where God says to Solomon, I'm going to give you whatever you ask for in order to lead well. So whatever you need, man, just ask for it and it's yours. And this is what Solomon says. This is 1 Kings 3, uh, verse 9, screen and flow sheet written down here, where Solomon says, so give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was, was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. Uh, sometimes maybe if you've heard this story before, you remember it as something like, and Solomon asked for wisdom and God was so pleased. Uh, more pointed than that, more specific than just wisdom, which sometimes we think of wisdom as uh, like mental IQ or, or brain horsepower. I just want to point out that it isn't that. What Solomon asked for and what God gave is this discernment between right and wrong, just like knowing what's good and what's bad. Not, not just maybe in a moral sense, but God gave him this discernment of knowing, listen, this is what's going to be good for the people. And this is what is going to ruin them. I'm giving you the knowledge, the discernment of, of knowing right from wrong, good from bad. Now because Solomon asked for this as the story continues, God was 
was just was so delighted in Solomon's uh, in Solomon's request for this wisdom or discernment between right and wrong that God said, "Listen, you could have asked for riches." You could have asked for fame. You could have asked for this huge net of influence to go out over all of the nations around you, but you didn't. You asked for discernment. And we can see like Solomon standing on this hill looking out over this kingdom and he's so sure-footed and things are just going so well. And God says, listen, I want to give you the discernment that you asked for, but in addition, I want to give you everything else too. And so God gives him this, uh, discern, this heart of discernment, knowing right from wrong. He also gives them this phenomenal wealth. He also gives them this huge net of influence that goes out across the nations around them. Again, we just see the story is really good. The, the, the nation of Israel, they, ancient Israel, they did such amazing things under the, the leadership of David. And now as king starts off, the people are like, and it's going to continue and it's going get, to get even better than before if that's even possible. Just to, uh, just to give you a hint as to, uh, as to the wisdom or the discernment that, that Solomon had. There's a story um, fairly well known, although there's a few details that we tend to, to overlook. But there's a story about uh, two women who, uh, kind of the assumption that you get from the way that the story is told is that they were living in the same house and they both had, had newborn children. Only they're in the same house, different beds, uh, and, uh, and, and one woman like rolled over as she was sleeping with her newborn child and he suffocated and he died. And so she, as the alleged story goes, she took this, this child who had stopped breathing and she went and she switched it out with another woman in the house and took the living child back into her bed and just drifted back. Now in the morning, there's uh, shrieks, there's crying, of course. There's this child, this baby I was sleeping with, he, he's not breathing, he's dead. Only it's not my baby, This is not my child. I would recognize my child. It isn't him. That's my child. And so they start having it out. And then we pick up the story as they bring it to King Solomon and say, listen, she took my baby. Hers is dead, and now she's trying to to kidnap mine. You've got to stop her. And Solomon is listening to this. And the other one, of course, is going, that that didn't happen. That's not, listen, I'm sorry like that happened, but... But that's your fault. I had nothing to do with that. And there's like this back and forth. No, he didn't. Yes, you did. No, you didn't. And Solomon finally goes, just like, enough. And in this moment of um, maybe like Sherlock Holmes kind of like cleverness, cunning, he says, all right, this is what we're going to do. Cut the baby in half. Give each half to the different women. And one woman kind of looks back and, fine, I'm okay with that. Serves her right for accusing me. Other woman just goes, no, don't do it. Okay, that, give the child to her. It's more important that he lives than if he's mine. And Solomon, of course, having this plan all along, says, there's the mother. That's her. No mom would allow her baby boy to be harmed right in front of her just so that she could keep him. Now, the little or known part of the story, and what I think is, is key to the success of Solomon, at least in the early times, is sure-footedness, is that the women that came before him, they weren't high-up uh, officials. They weren't women of influence. 
In fact, the reason why they were living in the same house together is that they were both prostitutes. They were like on the lowest rung of the social ladder. And the reason why that fact is important is because they're now talking to King Solomon. It's, it's like they're, they're chatting it up with the president, Congress, and the chief justice of the Supreme Court all rolled into one. And you're going, how in the world do these two women get a hearing? Forget about what it's about. How do they get to share their story with King Solomon? Answer. The storyteller wants us to know something about Solomon. It's not only he's discerning, not only that he's just smart, that he's clever, not only that he's wealthy, that his influence goes wide. It's like no matter how famous he is, as among his own people, he has like this level of accessibility that anybody, no matter how high or how low on the rung, the social rung you are, you can always come to him and he is always there for you. I just want us to see how, how beloved he is by his own people. I think that's important. Because the story starts out so well. And as we're going to see slipping and as we're going to see a free fall, it's important for us to know Because this story wasn't being written in in real time as a diary. Today this happened. Today this happened. By all accounts, this story was written uh, somewhere in between like 582 and 537, I believe it is, uh, B.C. Remember the numbers count down towards zero as, as time goes on. Now, Forget about uh, those dates. That's not so much important. I guess what's more important is that in the history of Israel, it was uh, more dates here. Nation was uh, after long after Solomon was split into two northern and southern kingdoms. In 722, again, we're counting down here. So in 722, the northern nation of Israel was taken away into the by the Assyrians. It's just like destroyed completely, gone, obliterated, nothing left. In 586 BC, a little later, almost uh, 200 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah. Armies came in, destroyed everything, took a remnant of the people into captivity, into exile. They were in exile for 70 years. 70 years that Babylonians were trying to essentially brainwash them into forgetting everything about the past. Forget about the land, forget about their God, forget about who they were. They took the best and the brightest and they were trying to indoctrinate them into the ways of the Babylonians. The reason why that's important is because this book... First and Second Kings, originally as one, was written by one author during that time of captivity. During that time when the people were not settled in the land that God had promised. During that time that they were in captivity, that they were being brainwashed, that they were in exile. It's generally regarded as the, the assumption behind the text that the, the author here is writing First and Second Kings to be read in one setting through and through as a, as a memoir of sorts. More than that, as a, as a cautionary tale. You want to know how we got here? Go back to the restaurant. You want to know how bad things could go? 
I'll tell you. And the memoirist writes this cautionary tale of First and Second Kings, and he starts off and he goes, you know, we had everything. Borders have never been bigger. The land had never been more prosperous. The influence was never wider. Our king was never more highly regarded than this time in First Kings. And then there was some slippage. We can see, though, that this slippage that happened, there's a, a, a difference between uh, wisdom and, and foolishness. Sometimes we think of you know, foolishness as, uh, as maybe you don't have the mental horsepower. Maybe, uh, maybe the IQ isn't, isn't quite there. Maybe you're less intelligent. No, no, no. Like the difference between wisdom and, and foolishness on that regard uh, it, it wasn't about uh, smarts. It, it was like this moral component. And so a while ago, we said that the difference between foolish or the, the definition of foolish is knowing the difference between right and wrong and choosing what was wrong. Solomon had made it his stated goal to collect this discernment to know the difference between right and wrong. Period. In fact, he sent out people far and wide to go collect wisdom from other places, from other nations. Uh, listen to uh, chapter 4, verse 29, flow sheet screen. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding. Listen to, just to the description of how good things were. As meaningless, as uh, measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people in the east, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan, the Ezraite, wiser than He-Man, masters of the universe. No, I'm just kidding. Make sure you're paying attention here. Wiser than uh, Haman, Kalkol, and Darda, sons of Mahol, which were presumably very wise. Uh, and his fame spread throughout the, uh, all the surrounding nations. He spoke, and this is it, 3,000 proverbs. And his songs numbered 1,005. 3,000 proverbs. By the way, we've got a lot of them. Any guesses? Which? It's Psalms. No, I'm just kidding. He would send people. Listen, I know my like, you know, pithy sayings, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right? These one-liners that we have in English. In Hebrew, they're generally two-liners. He would send people out to say, listen, there's wisdom beyond our borders. Go find out what it is and bring it back home. I want to write it down. So sometimes even today we have like these proverbs that, that were clearly Egyptian proverbs. They were not Hebrew proverbs. They weren't from the Hebrew people. And they're like, how does this Egyptian proverb get into our holy Bible, our sacred text? His answer is because Solomon went wherever God was bestowing wisdom, he grabbed it and claimed it as God's truth. And so like there's these couple of, not one-liners, but two-liners that just demonstrate just how vast and measureless his wisdom was. Uh, a couple of them I wanted to share with you because I think they're probably relevant. Um, first of all, a wood without, uh, wood without fire. I'm sorry. All right. Let's try it over. Without wood, a fire goes out. And without gossip, conflict ends. Don't you just love the, the image behind it? It's like this guy, you know, uh, rural kind of community, and the lights go out. You don't just flip on the, the light bulbs, but there's a fire that's going, and these guys are like putting logs on it again and again and again. Eventually, it's time for bed. A couple of hours before then, they quit putting logs on. 
And then notice the fire goes out so small, you just kick some dirt on it and go to bed. Without, fire, without wood, a fire goes out. Guy goes, ah, funny thing is, in relationships, it kind of works the same way. It's like this rumor gets going, and it's just around and around the office, around the neighborhood, around the extended family. And every time it comes around, it's like this new evolution. It's this new twist on the same, same dirty, sordid tale. And guy goes, uh, you know, if you want to put the fire out, you've got to stop feeding it wood. In the same way, if you want this conflict, this story to somehow just end, like quit talking about it, quit gossiping about it, presumably including Facebook and social media. <laughs> just one more um, it's better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf where there is hate. Better a meal of vegetables where there's love than a fattened calf where there's hate. I guess uh, today a proverb says, you know, better a one-bedroom rented apartment where people care about each other, like each other, and love each other than a seven-bed, five-and-a-half-bath mansion where they don't see each other, where they don't love each other, where they haven't liked each other in a long, long time. Just these sayings, and Solomon would collect them. Wherever God's truth went out, he would claim it as his own and pass it along. Things have never been so good. So listen, I don't understand. I thought you said there was some slipping involved. I thought you said we're going to head into free fall. I mean, things are, (laughs) they just keep getting better and better. first moment is a slip. It comes in 1 Kings 6, but before we do, I just want to tell you, Solomon's tasked with building the temple. It's a, it's a grand project to, to which he has ample resources to get to. He builds up this temple. There's, there's a description in 1 Kings 6. It's incredible, right? There's, um, there's blocks that they're built with because it, it, it's so tall and so big. It's made out of stone. But it's not just any kind of blocks because the, the site of the temple was considered holy. They didn't want to profane it with like construction noise. And so it said that the stones were cut and dressed off-site, underground, in the quarry where they were made and brought over silently so as not to, to desecrate the site. Oh, one person said throughout the entire city of Jerusalem, you couldn't hear one chisel as this massive structure was being completed. That's a respect that they had for it. Just the, the look of the thing, cedar paneled walls, gold chains hanging, carvings of, of, of uh, uh, gourds and open flowers, just these images of abundance, of excess, of just God providing more than enough to get by. And then the, the memoirist writing this cautionary tale as he transitions to say, listen, God built, or I'm sorry, Solomon built God's house and then Solomon built his own. And, and listen to the transition. It's difficult to pick up because in English it's split over two different chapters. But I want you just to ignore the chapter breaks and just like listen to it as they would have just right through. Chapter 6, verse 38 and 7-1. In the eleventh year, of the, in the month of uh, Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details, like I said, according to its specifications. He, sp- he spent seven years building it. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the destruction of his palace. 
memoirist is in exile, far away, thousands of miles away in Babylon, and he's looking back, answering this question, rhetorically asked, how did we get here, and what do we do now? And he's saying, you know, Solomon, for how smart he was, for how clever he was, for how much he knew the difference between right and wrong, He was obedient to God in so far that it takes him seven years to complete this magnificent temple, God's house. And kind of tongue-in-cheek, he says it took 13 years to complete his own. And then he goes on to describe in vivid detail all the specifications, all the finishes of his own house. And it's all there, just like at the temple, only as he describes it, again, a bit tongue-in-cheek, I have to read it. He goes, you know, it's, it's to, the, to the cubit, which is like a little bit less than a foot, so I mean like inches. To the inch, it was just as, as tall, Solomon's house to God's house, except for it was a little bit wider. It was a little bit longer. It's just a little bit nicer. It took just a little bit longer to make. Start to see Solomon not so much as the sure-footed leader of God's people looking down over this vast kingdom, but we start to see like slippage happening. And I just wonder, he's going to recover, right? This this was an isolated incident, right? This is somebody who knows the difference between right and wrong. He can come back from this, right? We catch up with Solomon in chapter 11, verse 1. Where the memoirist, writing a cautionary tale, says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women, besides Pharaoh's daughter, that was his, uh, his first wife, uh, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had, had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. And nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. It's a shocking detail, the author adds. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after their gods, and his heart, and maybe like if you're going to underline one word in this whole thing, is, was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Uh, 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines. Maybe a couple of interesting notes about that is that in those times you would marry someone uh, commit to each other, to taking care of each other. If you're a king, maybe not just only out of love, but, but you would do it out of a need for security or a desire for security as well. So that the first wife that he took was a daughter of Pharaoh of Egypt. Egypt was a very, very large country, and at the time Solomon took over, uh, Israel, though very successful for them, was much smaller in comparison. By marrying Pharaoh's daughter, he sort of, he sort of put an ace up his sleeve, Right? He just had a little bit of insurance to fall back on. Of course, Egypt isn't going to attack and destroy Israel. I mean, his, the Pharaoh's daughter is married to the king. It'd be like attacking a killing family. You don't, you don't treat family that way. Times 700 by royal birth. Boy, that, there must be a phenomenal number of countries surrounding Israel at the time. There wasn't. 
There was not even close to 700 nations surrounding Israel. Solomon just wanted that much insurance. He wanted to make sure that, hey, no matter what kind of overthrows, whatever new administrations, kingships, whatever was happening in any of the nations around him, he wanted to have a wife from each of the prominent families, from each of the, of the royal subfamilies under the main royal family, so that no matter what happened, nobody's going to attack him. It'd be like attacking family. He's hedging his bets. I mean, besides hedging his bets by doing exactly what God told him not to, he's also, he's also taking 300 concubines. Because, let's just be sure, this is not uh, an interest or a hobby of his. This, this is an obsession. This is the thing that he's known for. This is what he's decided to make his life about. And so the memoirist tells us, hey, um, by the way, by doing all this, the wives, they, they led him astray. Solomon comes home. Honey, you look sad. What's the matter? Well, I am sad. You see, I, I was just thinking today about my family back home. And I was just thinking about the... the you know, the food that we had to eat, the memories that we had, just so much about the culture that we had back home. And I guess I just miss it. And Solomon says, listen, I'm rich. I have so much at my disposal. What could I, what could I do for you to help you feel less sad? She says, life kind of revolves around the temple. Yeah, I just remember going there and the, and the words that are read, the priests that offer the sacrifices, just so much about it. Can we, just, can we bring some of that here just so that I can be happy? And he says, you know what? This is a small thing to ask for. I snap my fingers and it'll just come. It'll, it'll happen. Solomon, won't you come with me? <laughs> I don't see you so much anymore. Maybe, maybe just Solomon, it isn't too much to ask for once a year to come with me to go to the temple, my temple, not yours. I'll go to yours. You come to mine. Times a thousand. If he's going, you know, just speculating, one temple for one wife or concubine once a year. Three different temples a day, more or less? Three different temples outside of, of his own? We start to see how they led him astray. Slippage. Fast forward to Solomon being an old man, looking back. In the book of Ecclesiastes, which we'll get to next time, where he looks back at his life misspent and he goes, Meaningless? Is it all just meaningless? Now Solomon is sad at a misspent life. It's hard to pass on the faith from one generation to the next when by the end of it all you're just not sure of it yourself. You've dedicated your lives to a, a thousand other things. 
it isn't surprising that Solomon's son does the same, grandson, great-grandson, the nation splits. Some leaders come up, try to get the nation back on track, listen to the voice of God. He has what's good for you, but you're actively not choosing that. You're choosing the other. You're choosing what's bad. It isn't surprising when Israel gets taken away. It isn't surprising when Judah, the southern kingdom, gets taken away. And we go back to that memoirist writing the cautionary tale in exile of First Kings, and he goes, this is how we've fallen. We're so sure-footed on top of the hill, and we started slipping. And that was like this free fall after that. And now we're just crashed at the bottom of the hill. He writes it as a way of not just as an explanation about how they went from A to B. But as we pray, almost every time when we open up this word of God, we pray that the same Holy Spirit that inspired the memoirist to write that cautionary tale so long ago also writes on our hearts here this morning to say, God, you as the author are still alive and are still active. God, what do you have for us today, because it isn't about just Israel getting from A to B. It's about, hey, in 10 years, in 20 years, are we going to become the kind of people that God wants us to be? Uh, to help maybe illustrate the point, this is awesome. It's a razor, in case you can't see it. Um, like a toddler one, so it's got the two, two back wheels on it. So a uh, story... Um, my daughter and I, uh, Lily, likes to go on these, these walks and, and ride her, her scooter. And, uh, and there's this kind of hill, it's a sidewalk, kind of goes down, only it's in this gully. And so when it rains, it floods, and then the, the like, dirt and the water and everything, kinda, the water dries away and the dirt stays there. And so there's this hill, and it goes down into this gully, and it is covered in sand at the bottom. And then it makes this sharp turn to get out. And, and at the sandy bottom of the thing, there's also, like, thorns and pricker bushes on either side, because why not, right? Uh, <laughs> And so the uh, story goes, uh, Lily and I, you know, we're walking through, and she likes to, like, ride way up ahead and then wave and then ride up ahead, come back. Um, she rides up ahead, and she goes to the, to the top of the hill that I can see her, and I kind of know what's down on the other side. And she's, like, looking back like she does. And, uh, and I say, stay there, right? Like, don't move. And she's, you know, she's on there. She's sure-footed and, uh, and stable. And she said, don't go down that hill. <laughs> and she kind of looks back. Looks forward. I can just see her like processing this. I don't know like how she processed, but she starts like scooting, right? And I don't scoot. Don't go down that hill. And she kind of looks back and scoots a little more. And then I see like her head disappear from the horizon. And she goes down and, and I can't see her. I can just hear her. And there's like this crashing sound. And then there's crying and there's presumably blood and tears. Um, don't feel super bad for her because after all, right, she wears this. Um, and I just, I knew what was happening, this like watching her trying to, don't do it, don't do it. And she scoots herself over there. I think that some of us are in the free fall mode right now with whatever it is. 
Just, I mean, life is out of control. Like, financial situation is just way beyond what's reasonable, way beyond any way that we could, like, rein it back in. Relationships are a mess. That word about the gossip spreading its way. I mean, it just, the chickens came back to roost, right? Another proverb. Sometimes, like, the free fall just takes us away. For others of us in the room, the free fall has not happened yet. And we're just scooting, just scooting. And so I think the memoir, memoirist wants, wants you to ask, I think the Holy Spirit who inspired the words of the memoirist's cautionary tale wants you to ask, where are you scooting? Towards what hill are you heading towards? Maybe the financial situation isn't like absolute free fall mess yet. Maybe you're scooting towards a place where it's like, you know, I just, I, things are fine right now, I guess, but it just seems like my attitude has changed. That, that I, used to, I used to want to have more so that I could give more. I, I used to want to have this like heart of generosity and that's like the primary motivation that I had behind accumulation. But now... Now this like small change has been made where I just, I just like to have more. I just like to get more. In money, it isn't about generosity anymore, about helping out people or causes that are close to my heart. But no, no this generosity thing has been supplanted by this, by this insatiable need to get and to have and to influence others and to impress others. I'm not in like absolute free fall, but I just happen to notice that the hill that I'm scooting towards, and it's not a very pretty one. If you're like in free fall or if you're in scoot mode towards a hill that you're terrified of heading down, I, I want to give you just a few, a few ways of averting that disaster. You know, number one is we keep coming back to this idea about the Holy Spirit who inspired these words so long ago and keep making them alive even, even today in 2014. And they're alive because that Spirit is alive in you. And chances are that Spirit is like, is a, is like pulling you towards something. So even as I'm talking about like, hey, there's this hill that you might be scooting towards and heading down, it's like God gives you an idea in your mind about just what that hill looks like. And it's probably more specific than anything I could ever say from this stage. Because God is speaking to you and he's looking into your heart and he's saying, listen, you're headed down this thing that you don't want to go down. I don't want to let you go down. It's going to be painful. What is it? What's God telling you? The other one is just simple ways of opening up the Bible and saying, God, I need a perspective that is not my own. The thing about these words is that, is that they have this staying power, that it's hard to argue with it in black and white. And so sometimes to get that perspective, not our own, we have to read through something. I, I love this Psalms project that's, uh, that's going around. I'm not like totally a part of it, but <laughs> I can kind of follow it a bit on Facebook. And just to see like people wrestling with these ideas of, of God's justice, of God's righteousness, about, about what God has to say in a perspective that's entirely not our own. And what he's saying, get off that hill. This is where it goes. Listen to this psalmist. Listen to this. And others of you aren't in scoot mode, aren't in like free fall mode, but you're lying at the bottom of the hill, broken and bleeding, crashed, 
and saying, what now? I don't need another lesson in how not to get from A to B. I'm already here. It's too late to get off the road. I just want to show you how 2 Kings, this book for 2 Kings, how it ends. After the people are dragged away in exile, after like the worst possible scenario that the people feared finally came true, this is how it ends. 2 Kings 25, 27. In exile, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year well Marduk became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. It's like specific. Don't forget this. It's an important date. Verse 28, he spoke kindly to him, the king that is, to the king of, of Judah in captivity, and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. It's really all it says. The bad king gave the Israelite Judah struggling king a get-out-of-jail-free card. And a couple verses later, Second Kings, the first Kings book, just kind of ends. But it ends on this note of optimism on hope. It ends on this note of in the language that we heard, uh, first word coming to us from Pastor Brian, on this covenantal language of saying, but God had a promise that we're his people and he's not going to let us go. He won't give up. He won't ever give up. If you're lying at the bottom of the hill, broken, bleeding, crying out, just wanted to let you know, even though you're in a place, the worst possible scenario had, in fact, come true, God doesn't give up. He's still there. He's still active. He will not let you go. For the Israelites and for us today, he says, fine, you need a king who's not ever going to go astray, who's not going to scoot towards your demise, who's not going to know the difference between right and wrong and choose wrong in a self-destructive kind of mode, taking you down with him. I will give you my son as your king. Notes of hope is the ending of the story. I hope wherever you are on this hill, you find that hope in Jesus Christ as well. If we just stand up, let's pray together. Our gracious God, uh, we ask by your Holy Spirit, the one who inspired these words so long ago, to live again in our hearts this week. God, if, if we're scooting towards a hill that you know we do not want to go down, God, give us the courage, give us the wisdom to, to back away from that hill. Uh, God, um, put your spirit in us to get us, Lord, to open up your word, to, to hear these stories about people who've gone before us, to give us these cautionary tales about what's down at that hill. God, remind us in new and fresh ways that we don't have to go down. That you, Lord Jesus, have paid the price for our sins. And Lord, you will not get up, even to the point of coming back from the dead. Amen.